We have arrived at the end of summer, Labor Day weekend. We hope everybody who listens to this podcast gets out, gets to have some fun before we settle into the fall routines. Before we do that, we have an episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm glad you're here with us too. Let's get started so we can get to the weekend as quickly as possible. How did nine Ohio Lottery Commission workers, whose job is to investigate wrongdoing and abuses at the Thistledown Racino, end up being the subject of a blistering investigation themselves about their very well-organized scheme to get paid for not working? Laura, this is a kind of amazing story because some of these guys, when they were getting paid to be at Thistledown, were working as police officers. Yes, exactly. And that's one of the ways they track this, right? They were looking at time cards and looking at where else they were at that time. This is from the Ohio Inspector General. They had this report that came out yesterday. So we're talking about $30,000 in pay and benefits for time not worked at the Jack Thistledown Racino. To be very clear, these are not Racino employees. That's why, but they work for the state. That's why the inspector general can look into this. The Ohio Lottery Commission makes sure that profits from video lottery terminals and the racetracks that they benefit the public primary, secondary, and vocational and special education funds where they're supposed to go. So these people are supposed to be there 24-7 and available at well, the no, race. No. No individuals supposed no, to be no, there twenty four seven, but no. they are supposed to have shifts around the clock. Yes, right. There's supposed to be somebody there all the time, but they don't have their supervisor there all the time, right? So, I guess there's a little bit of honor system here. So, there's one guy. He worked part time for the Newton Falls Police Department, including some shifts while he was paid to work both times. That's thirty seven hours for Andrew Harvey. There's a guy named Christopher Monda. He's an investigator. He's paid th- for the most hours, one hundred and ninety two. And he had an, apparently an arrangement with other investigators on Saturdays. They were supposed to work together in pairs on Saturdays, but they only actually had one person <laughs> working. And then they would fill out the time cards for the other days. And this guy worked part-time for university hospitals in Conneaut and Geneva, including some shifts when he was supposed to be working for the Lottery Commission. Hey, the police officers, the people yeah. that are supposed to enforce the law and have integrity are scamming the public out of tax dollars with a very deliberate scheme. And this is bad. You, 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 they're getting together and saying, hey, we don't have to work. We can get paid. You do this. I'll do this. And, and you know, when you read deep into it, the, the workers at the casino could never find them, but they didn't want to complain because these are the regulators of the Racino. And they thought, if I complain, these guys will stick it to me. And they would think that because these guys are so dishonest. Right, exactly. So you don't want to complain about the people who are overseeing you, right? But yeah, they couldn't find them sometimes because they weren't there. The same Monda guy. What do you mean? You don't want to complain about people overseeing you. You guys do that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I... Okay, point. <laughs> but um, this this Monda guy, he was actually on FMLA from the Lottery Commission and then worked 31 shifts at UH during that time. That is a violation of policy. So yeah, I mean, this is not a huge amount of money when you're talking about corruption, 30 grand. I mean, we're talking less than a week's worth of work for some people. But 
these are the people that are supposed to be enforcing the laws that we entrust. And this is very dishonest. And it took an extraordinary amount of work to find it out. They, yeah. they, they The investigators watched a lot of camera footage from mm-hmm. the casino to see when they clocked in and clocked out. They had to get years of card swipe information. And this it, it's not just the expense of paying these people for not working. It's a massive expense to to prove that they're scamming the taxpayers. So now it moves on to to the attorney general's office or who? Because you got to expect this will result in criminal charges. Yeah, it's going to the Cuyahoga County prosecutor's office. And then then I believe the state auditor, Keith Faber, can do some more, too. Wow. What a what an amazing one. When that press release rolled across yesterday, it was an eye opener. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much will Cleveland pay to a dozen protesters police wrongfully arrested during the protests following the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota? Layla, Cleveland has a long history of doing wrong when there are protests in the city and then paying big because of their misdeeds. That's true. And and this particular protest uh, ended up spinning out several different lawsuits. So the city of Cleveland will will settle this federal lawsuit by paying $540,000 to 12 protesters who were wrongfully arrested downtown. These protesters claim that they were among those who were peacefully demonstrating outside the Justice Center during that George Floyd protest that eventually turned violent, but they caused no destruction or violence and they ended up in jail anyway. Some of them were held in the jail for as long as three days and then released without charges. Others were accused of felony, aggravated riot and failure to comply. And those charges were then later dismissed. And police pepper sprayed one woman while she was kneeling and holding a sign. It doesn't get much more vulnerable than that. And an officer shot another man with pepper ball. So the city has also agreed to help expunge the records of the people who were charged with crimes on account of this event, and they've pledged to better train officers to handle crowds at future protests because, you know, we're only seven years into a consent decree, so I guess it's time to train them for something as basic as that, right? <laughs> well, you would, you would think they would have learned their lesson at the RNC when they yeah, did right. things and got into trouble. You, th- you would have thought they would have learned their lesson after the Brelo protest when they had to pay because they arrested people they had no business arresting. It, it just seems like their natural fallback is if anybody has the audacity to challenge anything in the city, the police beat him up and do things they shouldn't do. I mean, let's not forget the poor guy that lost his eye. And he was simply walking down the street when a deputy sheriff shot him in the face with a beanbag. And it's, it's stunning the bad behavior by police in this thing. And look, it falls back to the city administration and the sheriff's office, because despite all signs pointing to a massive protest, They missed them and they didn't have anybody there to staff the thing. And so they were overwhelmed by the response. But it's just once again, even though, like you mentioned, they've been under the consent decree for years, they still abused people taking advantage of their constitutional rights. When does it end in this town? Right. And and this settlement comes on the heels of the city agreeing to pay two people a combined $75,000 after they were arrest- arrested for violating curfew, when in fact one of them lived downtown and had stepped out of his apartment to pick up a grocery delivery and the other was on his way to his job at the Justice Center. These This was when they imposed that curfew in the days after that protest. So, uh, you know, the, and the city also... Uh, paid $35,000 to each to two protesters who sued Officer John Casimer, who beat one man with a police baton and pepper sprayed another woman during that protest. 
So it's, um, you know, it's just, yeah. it's always, you know, and remember John Casimir actually got fired after he missed work and blamed it on jury duty he didn't have. It's it's so interesting that it's always something lame like that that gets them fired, not the really bad thing, right? <laughs> like what? Although it's another law enforcement officer lying about what he's doing. It's just, it's it, we just talked about that case. And we should point out that we do have a new day. We have a new mayor in Justin Bibb since January. We have a new police chief that's pretty highly regarded. Both of them have been pretty adamant that they're not going to tolerate this kind of thing. And, have and had we have a community police commission that's on its way, too. Right. That, that is independent and will be able to mete out discipline. So maybe this marks the end of it. You certainly hope so. People should be allowed to exercise the rights given to them in the Constitution. They had a right to be there. They had a right to question what happened in Minnesota and the police that had no right to beat them. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Anybody remember the Lons Winery, which once was one of the biggest in the country until it collapsed in 2000, killing one and injuring 75? It's on a Lake Erie Island. The state now owns the site and is proposing some pretty big spending there. Lisa, it struck me when this story broke that none of you, I don't believe, were working in our newsroom or in Cleveland when this happened, and I might be the only one that remembers it. Oh, yeah, and I, sir, I it did make national news. I do remember that. I was in Texas at the time. Um, and yeah, it was, it was tragic, but this is uh, what we're talking about here is not the winery building, which was actually kind of semi demolished and created into a pavilion, but this is the house where the winery owner lived, George Lons. So the Ohio department of natural resources will spend $5 million to restore that 1906 home. It's on middle bass Island and it's right in the middle. It's within the middle bass Island state park and is owned by the state director. Mary Mertz of the ODNR says this 3,200 square foot house has not been touched for decades. They stabilized it a few years ago, but she says, you know, it's, it's not in great shape, but it has great bones. The interior will need to be completely re gutted and rebuilt. And this home was, um, George Lons bought the home in 1926 from another winemaker. Um, he lived there until his death in 1969. And then the winery was sold to, uh, a Cleveland distiller in the 70s, and the home was converted into dorms for winery workers. But after that accident in 2000 uh, with the winery building, the mansion just was closed and has really been sitting kind of rotting since then. But Mert says she sees this as a, as a key to getting people back to Middle Bass Island. It used to be a very popular place in the Depression, you know, when the winery was there. Um, but it's kind of, you know, kind of you know, gone down since then. So she's thinking that the Lons mansion could be used possibly as a bed and breakfast. They could have public tours on the main floor. There's a guy who's a fourth generation Middle Bass Island resident who thinks it should be a museum, but they really want to do get people back to Middle Bass Island. Everything Susan Glatzer writes makes me want to go visit. Right. And I've never been to Middle Bass Island, but the history lesson that she puts in, I had forgotten how big that winery was. I mean, it was a big story when it collapsed. It was, it, it was a lot of almost scandal about it. And then nothing happened for 10 years before the state took over the site. But what they're talking about doing and the long history of who was out on that island, it sounds like that was a very cool place to be. I, it said, I think, four presidents had visited yeah. there back in the day. So you really want to go visit. And that's the purpose of this. They want to give people enough to do to make a visit right. 
worthwhile. How hard is it to get to? Well, it's I think it's like a 40-minute ferry ride to get there. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how the ferry system works. I don't know if it goes to all the islands out there. But to get to this one, Middle Bass, it's about a 45-minute you know, ride, which I would enjoy. But, um, you know, I, George Lons, apparently, you know, he, he took this over just before, you know, the depression hit and, you know, he was dealing with prohibition. So he was actually serving grape juice or selling grape juice to people and telling them how to turn it into wine at home so he could, you know, get through (laughs) prohibition. Yeah, it's a it's a great storied history. What, what does Our Lady of the Lake say? Laura, have you been there? I have not been there. Oh, wow, um, really? I have not been to Middle Bass, and I would like to go to Middle Bass. And you're right, Lisa, there is a ferry. I believe they also run one from Putin Bay, so you could go there for just a little bit. And there's like a water tour around there for kayaks, which is cool. So I'll have to put it on my list, especially once this is all fixed up. Yeah, another Susan Glazer win. She is the star travel writer of all travel writers. Her story is on cleveland.com and in today's Plain Dealer, I believe. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's a phony ceremony in that work began a long time ago, but the ceremonial groundbreaking for the huge Intel microchip plant next week features some pretty big names. Laura, what do we know so far? Well, I don't know if there'll be gold shovels, but my money is on it. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So President Joe Biden's coming. We're going to have Governor Mike DeWine, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger, and then a number of state and local officials. That's a quote from the press release. We don't know which state and local officials that will be, but there'll be a lot of people from Intel, obviously. This was originally scheduled to happen in July, but they pushed it back over the uncertainty of the CHIPS Act uh, that is going to make it a lot easier for Intel to build this. So Biden's going to speak about that and how the bipartisan infrastructure law will help rebuild American manufacturing. So it'll be a big, big hullabaloo. Well, if Biden's there, you got to figure Jim Jordan will be there, right? He'll want to be in a photo (laughs) opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, you know, everybody wants to stay away from Biden. So we'll see if like Tim Ryan uses this as an opportunity. I mean, everybody wants to claim credit for Intel, but not not align themselves with Biden. Yeah, but it, it does tell you how important it is to get a big microchip plant in America, given the shortage that the president is coming himself to right. help do the phony groundbreaking because they've been doing work for months. It's today in Ohio. Well, I don't know, you mentioned the Cleveland Community Police Commission in the earlier part of the podcast, and now we know who the finalists are to serve on that commission. What do we know about them? Yes, this uh, 13-member citizen panel created by voter-approved Issue 24 will replace the the current commission. And city council gets to nominate three members to the commission while the mayor appoints the other 10. And they're all subject to council approval eventually. And council has narrowed their list down to 12 finalists who are going to be interviewed by a council committee next week so they can make their final choices. Five of council's finalists are also on Mayor Justin Bibb's list of 34 finalists. The charter amendment requires members of the new Community Police Commission to be representative of the racial, social, economic, and cultural interests of the community. So we would expect to see in this group a diversity of racial groups, and we'd expect to see immigrants or refugees, members of the LGBTQ community, young people, folks from the faith and business communities, and others. And and membership has to include representatives from very specific groups. So we have to have representation from civil rights groups, people who have been directly impacted by police violence or who have had a family member killed by police, and people impacted by gun violence. 
So, and no more than three members can represent police associations. So Courtney Astolfi has put together the full list of finalists in her story online, including some very interesting information from each of their applications. But generally, we see that the finalists include eight, eight black people, two white people, two Hispanic people, and one Asian person. Eight candidates are men, three are women, and one identifies as transgender non-binary. Two are veterans, and one is a person with a disability whose first language was American Sign Language. A few are former Cleveland police officers. One said that they were wrongfully arrested when they were in college, and another said he was shot by Toledo police on May 30th, 2020. So very interesting group uh, that is coming up for interview next week. There will be an inevitable conflict between some of the things this group does and the city administration. And you really hope that the city administration and the police administration work with them, embrace what they're trying to do. This is a huge step forward in bringing accountability to the police. It sounds like they've put together a really decent cross-section so that so that we can do the right thing. But in the back of your mind, you're just thinking, you know, if they come down hard on somebody, does the police department get its back up? And does the administration start to get its back up? The voters have spoken, though, so this group will have its power. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is not debating the trend these days for incumbent Republican candidates in Ohio. Chief politics writer Andrew Tobias explored the question. Lisa, it's a pretty rich one. What did you find? Yeah, it seems like a lot of Republican incumbents figure they don't need to debate their opponents. And perhaps, you know, they don't want to go up against them, you know, in a a debate format because it might not look good for them. But, you know, looking at Governor Mike DeWine, he's been very noncommittal about attending upcoming debates that are coming up this month and next month before the November 8th election. He hasn't accepted or rejected any invites yet, but he again repeated, he says, you know, I've held more press conferences than any other governor. I'm always talking to the media, but he says he will attend our cleveland.com and plain dealer endorsement interview, which should be coming up later this month. He said that that's actually a de facto debate. Um, so yeah. And, and look, it is, I mean, it's a very effective venue where, where we ask questions, they can talk to each other, we keep the nonsense out by closing it down, and he's always participated in it. But I am surprised that that in the general election, he's choosing not to. And part of me wonders whether this is also the result of the dearth of media around mm. the state. You know, we, we're a robust newsroom. You know, we're growing and, you know, we're, we're healthy. And, and so we have a very strong editorial voice, probably stronger than ever before. But where there used to be voices like that across the state, there's not. And so there's no real clarion call on these politicians to face the music, to sit, to stand against each other. I think the other thing, and and Andrew's story explains this, is the debate organizers feel like they have all Mm -hmm. this power and they say, you know, here's the date, here are the rules, be there or don't. And the politicians are thinking, well, you know, I've got social media. I've got all these other methods. I can reach people. I don't really need you. Back in the day when debates really roared back into public life, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, there still weren't that many avenues. So you don't have a lot of opinion makers calling for it and explaining to the public why it's important 
and the politicians have other avenues. So I wonder if this is the end of, of political debate. I, I would really hate to see that because, you know, yeah, they have a bigger presence on social media, but are they debating their their opponents face to face in social media? No, I don't think they are. They're just kind of shouting at each other over Twitter or whatever. But, you know, debates are an old political tradition. You know, it gets, you know, candidates talk, thinking on their feet, you know, in, in an impromptu situation and allows them to be more spontaneous and voters can see that instead of their canned, you know, campaign speeches. But Debates can change, you know, the dynamics of a race. You know, if if an incumbent comes out looking bad against, you know, his challenger, it could he could lose, you know, voters because of that. But this all started apparently in Ohio. I guess the first Republican to refuse a debate was uh, Governor John Kasich back in 2014. He did not want to debate Ed Fitzgerald, who later lost badly in the election. But um, the only thing that John Kasich did was he appeared before the Plain Dealer editorial board to to debate his uh, opponent. But after this, apparently, and you know, you would know, Chris, because you were a former member, but apparently after Kasich's refusal, that led to the creation in 2018 of the Ohio Deba- Debate Commission. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. No, I was uh, instrumental in the beginning. We provided all the legal help when it was uh, attacked by some of the third parties. Um, and I was one of the board members until uh, I think it was earlier this year. But but again, I think part of the problem for the Ohio Debate Commission is it is regimented. So these are the rules. This is what we're doing. But I, and I also think the bigger problem is, is it's formed a, by a lot of media members and its format is is mm-hmm. kind of rigid. You know, you have news news media moderators. Well, a lot of politicians don't like that. They don't like the, the being tied to the mainstream media. We're actually talking about, I don't know if I, we can get it done in time, but we're talking about staging a county executive debate in which the candidates ask each mm-hmm. other the questions. And our only role would be to, to keep the time limits. Because I would get so much more out of hearing Chris Ronan ask Lee Weingart a question and, and Weingart answering it, and then Chris getting to rebut and say, you didn't answer the question, Lee, let's try it again, and then vice versa. The tenor of the questions, how they ask it, what they think is important. I think part of the problem with debates is it's become this celebrity mm. media thing where the moderators are part of the show, and we're not. This is about the candidates, and I wonder whether... Um, if if it were staged differently, whether the candidates might be more interested, I think part of it is the media has hurt itself by. And honestly, media moderators aren't always the best moderators. I mean, they often soft pedal the questions. They don't ask for, you know, concrete answers when they get non-answers. So, yeah, I think, you know, in an editorial board, you know, it's made up of, you know, citizens as well as media people. So. Yeah, we're not performing. We're just trying to get straight answers. I, I love our format. I've loved it ever since I first sat in on it so many years ago. I don't want to discuss it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is Cuyahoga County still ground zero in Ohio for monkeypox cases? Laura. Yes. <laughs> We're home to 90 of the state's 184 cases. The good news is it's not skyrocketing. They've added 37 new monkeypox cases statewide in the last week, and so far no one has died. 12 people have been hospitalized. Uh, that's about 6.5% of all the cases. Men have about 98% of the cases so far, and it's currently spreading among men who are intimate or have sex with men. However, the Ohio Department of Health is cautioning that this will spread to all populations and everyone needs to take precautions to not get sick. 
Okay. It's just, we keep talking about it because I still worry this has the breakout possibility. So far, risk remains low, but Cuyahoga has the most. It's today in Ohio. We all know Laura Johnston is the sports expert on this podcast, <laughs> but when it comes to the Cleveland Cavaliers, it's Layla Tassi. And the Cavaliers, last year's youngest team in the NBA, and the one that surprised everyone with its fun sense of play and its competitiveness, made a huge move Thursday to fortify the team for the coming season. Layla, what are the details of the big trade, and are you excited? Well, you know, I was the world's biggest Cavs fan during the LeBron years, and then when he left Cleveland the second time, I realized that Perhaps I was actually a LeBron fan more than anything, but this news that broke this week might be exciting enough to rekindle my passion for the Cavs. The Cavs picked up three-time All-Star Donovan Mitchell from the Utah Jazz, and in exchange, the Cavs will be sending back Lori Markinen, Colin Sexton, and Ochai Agbaji. He's a rookie, so I'm not sure if I if I pronounced his name correctly, I think we just picked him up in the draft. We're, we're also giving up three unprotected first-round picks and two pick swaps. Donovan Mitchell averaged 25.9 points for the Jazz last season while shooting 35.5% from three-point range on 9.8 attempts. He's also played in 39 career postseason games for the Jazz, averaging 28.3 points while shooting 43.1% from the floor and 37% from three. He comes to Cleveland in the second season of a five-year $163 million contract. So, I mean, this is an upgrade from Colin Sexton and and Donovan Mitchell is a legitimate star. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he brings to the to the Cavs. Yeah, the Terry Pluto had some thoughts. He points out that he's six one, but he but that he has very long arms. Uh, and and it was interesting reading Terry because, you know, they they gave away a lot of future draft picks for this, but they were competitive last year. And how much does this improve them to make them a serious contender should be exciting i it's always fun to see a blockbuster trade as the season approaches who would have thought at the beginning of this year that it would be the guardians and the cavaliers that we're talking about in excited tones and not the browns right (laughs) but that's where we stand it's today in ohio As we head into the long holiday weekend, people who look for bargains at thrift stores might be making the rounds, and we've got a couple of them on Today in Ohio. Lisa, before the podcast yesterday, you said you've noticed a recent trend in the ages of thrifters. You and Laura were having a fascinating conversation when I signed on. So let's talk about that and why you and Laura find enjoyment in searching for bargains in the thrift stores. I've been a thrifter since the 1980s when I first moved to Texas and didn't have a lot of money, and so I was looking for ways to furnish my house. So I've, and, but I'm more of a treasure hunter. I don't really shop for clothes unless it's a vintage Vera scarf, then I have to have it. But, um, you know, I've noticed lately, and this has just been since the pandemic, that the customers that I see in thrift stores are getting younger and they're actually more knowledgeable about vintage stuff. You know, you can still find like nice vintage finds that, you know, you could pick up for a couple of bucks. And if you're a reseller, you could sell it on eBay for a lot more. But I've noticed their shopping patterns are, different. You know, obviously a lot of millennials are and Gen Zers are going for the clothing. And I actually had to go and look this up. Um, there was a 
In August 2021, the Census Bureau crunched some data from the National Association of Resale and Thrift Shops, and they found that 16 to 18% of all Americans will hit the thrifts in a given year, and that's only a couple percentage points behind people who go to department and apparel stores. But younger adults, for them, a lot of it is being eco-friendly and sustainable. They don't want to buy fast fashion, which Laura talked about yesterday. They want to get, you know, nice vintage clothes for, you know, just a couple of bucks or whatever. So they see it as a sustainable and eco-friendly kind of thing. But, um, and there are also challenges on social media. I mean, there's, there are people who brag about their thrift hauls. There are challenges. Can you buy a complete outfit for $20 or less? You know, so I think social media has a lot to do with it, but sustainability is part of it. And I think people, you know, realize, oh, this is where the treasures are. You can still find treasures at a thrift shop. Laura, you were talking yesterday about how the the clothes you get on discount today, new clothes, are basically falling apart almost as soon as you get them home. And that one of the things you like about the vintage clothes is that, that they are so well made. Yeah, I think there's been a change in fast fashion over the last couple of years and probably exacerbated by the pandemic that, you know, you're ordering you can get really cheap things. You can find them on Instagram and and those don't thrift as well, right? Because they don't last as well. So I honestly, I go to the thrift store for the clothes because I have two growing kids and my son loses everything. And if I spent $100 on a winter coat, I'd be really pissed if he left it at school. But you know, if it was $10 at the thrift store, it's like, all right, I'll go. Mondays at Savers Mm -hmm. is half price day. So that is when I like to go. And I have found North Face jackets, Under Armour polos, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff that uh, works for my family. But it's mm-hmm. just fun. I, I told Chris, I was like, it's like the shopping version of beach yes. glassing because you what never you know find? what you're going <laughs> to find. You know, I found a flower sifter once that was like an antique and you come home and you're like, you have to take pictures, right? You're like, look at my haul. Right, right. <laughs> and there are entire, you know, there are interior designers who their entire aesthetic is thrift store chic. You know, well... And I'm I'm totally with you because I actually wrote a column about how all of the vintage stuff I have in my home and my like we went to a flea market over the summer and I came home with water skis and a minnow bucket and my husband <laughs> is like what are we doing with these and they are proudly on my front porch so yeah, it you sounds know like, it sounds like borderline hoarding to me I mean it's like a <laughs> lot of extra junk that other people got rid of it's decor Chris exactly. <laughs> and. When I was in my 20s, I was a huge thrifter, and uh, the best find that I ever collected was a multicolor fur coat. And by Ooh. multicolor, I mean color. <laughs> uh, my mom would always be like, oh, here she comes in her Technicolor dream coat again. <laughs> and it was just like gaudy, awful. I mean, oh, goodness. But, you know, I was in my 20s, so I could pull it off. <laughs> yeah. I think you could still pull it off, Layla. I want to oh, see no. this coat this winter. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. I wanted to end this podcast on a happy note as we go into the weekend, and we did. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. Have a great weekend. We'll be back on Tuesday. No podcast on Monday. <laughs>